This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Let's uh, turn our attention to the United States. Lots of things happening over the weekend from U.S. President Joe Biden's urging for a change in gun laws in the United States to China opposing trade talks between the country and Taiwan, as well as the possibility of the U.S. retaliating to China's efforts to get Pacific Island nations on their side. Let's run through the headlines with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for The Straits Times. Good morning, Nirmal. Let's start off with U.S. President Joe Biden urging for a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines after a series of mass shootings that stopped the country really sad. But in terms of star power, what kind of star power does Joe Biden have that could have an effect on tweaking those gun laws? What more do you think is needed for gun laws to finally change? Hi, good morning. How much star power? Not that much. Look, it needs 60 votes in the Senate to change gun laws. And as we know, the Senate is split 50-50, with Vice President Kamala Harris having the decisive vote to give the Democrats the most wafer-thin-one-vote majority. And they just don't have those 60 votes. What they are trying to do now is introduce legislation in the House that will essentially just tweak a few things around the edges like maybe raising the age limit for a young person to get an assault rifle, making so-called red flag rules nationwide, giving money for more security in schools. These don't address the issue, they address the symptoms. And the unfortunate fact is, even if Congress passes them, which they could, it would be quite a surprise if any of it passes in the Senate. So in the end, there is nothing that will be done to, let's say, significantly curb gun rights, which are not just written in the Constitution, but very much part of the DNA of America. Now, a Gallup poll in 2021 found that 52% of respondents supported more gun control legislation compared to 35% who said laws should just stay as they are. So there is a big disconnect between public sentiment and the Senate over this. It is completely lopsided. Part of the problem, of course, is the gun lobby, a very active gun lobby. Apparently, the National Rifle Association alone contributed roughly $149,000 to senators in the 2020 election cycle, nearly all of which apparently went to Republicans. And there are other gun lobby groups as well. I'm afraid there will be no significant change as long as this continues. Basically, the default position in Congress among most Republicans, not all, but definitely most, is to defend what they frame as an assault on the Second Amendment. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham is one of the recipients of that gun lobby money. And just a couple of days ago, he suggested getting war veterans to protect schools. In effect, militarizing schools, you might say. So we are a very long way from really meaningful curbs on gun ownership. Thanks a lot for giving us context there. Nirmal, the U.S. Department of Justice will not pursue charges of criminal contempt of Congress against former Trump White House officials Mark Meadows and Dan Scarvino for refusing to comply with subpoenas in the congressional investigation into the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. Now, how is this decision for the House Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol attack? I mean, what do you think happened here, you know, that such a decision was made by the U.S. Justice Department. Possibility that maybe there's not enough evidence in that sense? Meadows and Scavino were at Donald Trump's side when the mob of his supporters attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021, trying to stop the counting of the Electoral College votes. But unlike former Trump economic advisor Peter Navarro, who was indicted a few days ago, both have more 
compelling cases for claiming executive privilege and both did make some effort to cooperate with the committee. Meadows in particular handed over thousands of pages of documents, including text messages. So their cases were not as clear-cut as the cases of contempt against Peter Navarro or against former Trump strategist Steve Bannon, who was similarly indicted. So while the Justice Department is under pressure from Democrats to be more aggressive, it is likely that these were the considerations in these two cases. By the way, we need to watch out for Thursday, the 9th of June, this week, when the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th will hold its first televised hearing. That, too, at prime time. So it's going to be quite an interesting week. All right, definitely looking forward to follow up on that with you next Monday. Let's switch tracks a little bit, Nirmal. I want to talk about China. They have said they firmly oppose trade talks between the U.S. and Taiwan after Taipei and Washington announced the launch of a new initiative to deepen economic ties. Okay, no surprising the kind of reaction coming out of China, but what does that do in terms of dampening plans for this initiative? What kind of ripple effects will we see on the Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity? I mean, do you expect any ripple effect? The question of Taiwan is becoming more fraught. There's no doubt about that. We all heard what President Biden said in Seoul about coming to Taiwan's defense, and we saw the administration sort of try to nuance it while avoiding giving the impression it was walking it back. Now we have a lot of concern here in the U.S. that should something happen to Taiwan, apart from anything else, global microchip and semiconductor supplies will be severely disrupted. So this will be a somewhat of a damper on the initiative, but it will likely proceed anyway. When the U.S. left Taiwan out of the PEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, it drew a lot of criticism given Taiwan's critical economic position in global value chains. This is a way of drawing Taiwan in without the fallout affecting everyone else in the IPEF. Again, everyone is increasingly walking on eggshells on the question of Taiwan. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Sticking with China, you know, by the time Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's 10-day tour of the Pacific was over, he had met with leaders from all 10 Pacific Island countries that have diplomatic relations with China. Now, from the U.S. perspective, what does China want from the Pacific Islands? I mean, can we expect the U.S. to perhaps retaliate in some sense and possibly meet up with leaders in that region as well? I mean, is it worth the effort in that sense? Well, to start with, Foreign Minister Wang Yi's trip did not go quite so well. Eight Pacific countries have, at least for now, turned down a partnership proposal with Beijing that Western powers see as some sort of Trojan horse. Fiji's Prime Minister, in fact, tweeted after meeting Mr. Wang Yi that the Pacific needs genuine partners, not superpowers that are super-focused on power. And Fiji has signed up to the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Still, of course, China has scored by signing a security deal with the Solomon Islands and apparently a similar agreement with Kiribati. Both took the U.S. and its allies by surprise, and there is a perception that the Biden administration took its eye off the ball in the Pacific. So we have a new great game, as it were, for influence over the Pacific, and we can expect this point scoring to continue. And in some respects, the Pacific Island countries are being courted, you might say, by both China and the United States. From Washington's point of view, China is aiming at establishing dual-use facilities in the Pacific. That is, facilities that are used for civilian and commercial purposes, but can easily be converted or used for military purposes as well. 
The Pacific does have strategic value. It was, of course, a front in the Second World War, and America is unwilling to cede any ground to China there. You could argue that Chinese bases, if there were to be any in the Pacific, would hardly be a threat to the U.S. and its allies, in this case, notably Australia. Remember the, the reaction over China's agreement with Solomon Islands. But the logic remains that for the U.S. to send numbers of ships, aircraft, and personnel to any conflict, say, in East, Northeast Asia, they must pass through seas controlled by or proximate to the Pacific Islands. That is where they become very strategic indeed. Okay, Namal, final issue. I want to talk about North Korea firing eight short-range ballistic missiles towards the sea off its east coast yesterday. Do you think this is in retaliation to South Korea and the U.S. Uh, first combined military exercises, the one that just wrapped up? Has Washington reacted? How have they reacted so far? Yes, so according to the South Korean military, North Korea test-fired a barrage of short-range ballistic missiles, eight in total, as you say, from multiple locations toward the sea. The missiles flew apparently 110 to 670 kilometers out. South Korean Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman has held a video conference about the launches with the American general who heads the South Korea-U.S. Combined Forces Command in Seoul. Sung Kim, President Biden's special envoy for North Korea, also discussed the launches with South Korean officials in Seoul. And according to Seoul's foreign ministry, they expressed, quote-unquote, deep regret that North Korea was continuing its weapons development. Here in Washington, as of a couple of hours ago, we have not had any further reaction. But yes, this comes in the wake of joint exercises, which Kim Jong-un sees as practice for war with the North. And it comes in the wake of President Biden's visit to Seoul and the change of guard there. And as the U.S. believes the North may, in fact, even be preparing for a nuclear test. Clearly, the North is upping the ante, but has not given any indication of talking with the United States. So not a very positive development. All right. Thanks a lot for that. Uh, appreciate your time as always. Been speaking with Nirmal Ghosh, U.S. Bureau Chief for The Straits Times. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Like us and rate us.